Hello. Uh, hello. 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 Is this Ben? Uh, nope. 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 This is not Ben. I uh, just uh, calling to check in uh, about your if you needed your gutters cleaned. Um, and uh, maybe if, uh, I see here that you've recently put up a fence uh, in your front yard. We were just wondering if you maybe needed that painted. Um, actually, no. And I'm trying to think of the name of the company that cleans my gutters because it actually is a dude's name. Oh, it's yeah, not not to give them a plug or anything, but yeah. it's a company called Ned Stevens. So oh, Ned, um, yeah. Uh, what he's a we, we're in the. Um, Gutter Cleaning Association of America together. <laughs> together, we, yeah. Yes. We ran a, a session on um, uh, aluminum versus plastic soffits last year. At, the, at, the, at last year's International Association for Gutter, <laughs> gutter Cleaning. Cleaners. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you might be familiar with our work. Oh, Don uh, Schaffner. Yeah. So you know, and and they're not they're not a bad company as, <laughs> as, as better cleaning companies go. Um, they're always trying to upsell you, like on more cleaning, and then they tell me my gutters yeah. are broken and they want to fix them, and I keep telling them I got a guy uh, that I would do the <laughs> local guy that I would pay more uh, to do the same job um, because he's a friend of mine and he does good work. Um, but uh, but yeah, so. Anyway, Wait, I'm confused. Is it me? Am I your local guy that does a good job? Ben, um, although people often think that you are, you and I are in the same room. I know. Which, which would make them think that we are local. Um, we, in fact, are not local. As much as I've been hinting that uh, Rich Linton needs to offer me a job. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm tired of New Jersey. Well, you're tired of the, of the, Jersey, the jer- hot Jersey summers and the cold Jersey winters. Yes, that's that's what I'm tired of. Um, they did they did call me. Uh, they did call me about moving to Georgia uh, and interviewing for the job. Oh. Uh, apparently, uh, apparently, there's a guy named Mike Doyle. I'm, oh, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not familiar with his work, but I, I'm not sure you're pronouncing that correctly. But M- Michael Doyle. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> he's French. Yeah, he's French. He's French. He's from uh, he's from New Brunswick. It's too easy to make not him the from one in New Jersey. Right, right. No, a different New Brunswick. That's the confusing part. That's near Nova Scotia, right? It is. Uh, so <laughs> it's near it's very near Nova Scotia. Um you know you know my favorite band Sloan is from yep. Nova Scotia and I think I knew that. And they sing a song uh called the the NS, I believe, like as in the Nova Scotia. Uh-huh. And there's a line that says if you think that it's cold when you're swimming in the ocean, it's hard to believe you're a Nova Scotian. Which oh, is great. brilliant pose. Yes, yes. I love them. Yes. Um, yeah. And my and my speaking of favorite things from Nova Scotia, my favorite person on Facebook from Nova Scotia is Dave Bacon Shafter, oh, who yeah. I think discussed on the podcast before. The no relation. No zero. Doesn't, um, and yeah. and and I thought my brother had met him. My my brother's name is is David Schaffner. No bacon. Um, not 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 that there is no bacon, but there's no like anyway. It's, <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, and uh, but he hasn't actually met him. He just became friends with him on Facebook because apparently, uh, as we've discussed before, the Schaffners, when they came from Germany, they landed in Nova Scotia. Um, uh, and he very much looks like he could be a member of our family or vice versa, I suppose. That's Dave Bacon Schaffner. Um, but my brother's never met him. And so here's a person I've become friends with on Facebook who's hilarious, um, who I've never met, nor do I know anyone who's ever met him. Who, and we're probably related. Oh, Facebook. That's, I mean, that that's the the beauty of Facebook, right? When people would, I think this is the history of you coming up with him or meeting him is that he just searched somebody who had the same name as him, right? I think that's what my brother did. I don't yeah. know. Or someone, or Dave, yeah. or, or, or the Bakes did that. Right. 
Oh man, awesome! He's he is a source of uh, Canadian food safety information for us. He, he is. He's he's our inside man in Nova Scotia. He's our man on the street. <laughs> our man in um, Annapolis. Our man in Andy Ganesh. No, where is he? Where in Nova Scotia? You're just saying words now. I am. Those are those are real places in in Nova Scotia. No, Tiganish, Andy Ganesh. No, yeah, no. Oops, I'm cursed. Sorry, you're Truro, making stuff up now. Truro, our man in Truro. Truro, that's in that's in the UK. Uh, it's in the it's in Nova Scotia, as in New Scotland. It's, it's that's in also the, in the UK. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. It, Nova Nova Scotia. No, I mean, New, I forget. Is Scotland in the UK? I get I always get confused. There's probably a video about this. I think Scotland is in the UK, but it is not in England. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They, uh, <laughs> um. I, oh, we're, this we're, is a geography podcast. Now. It is, yeah. This is uh, this is Nova Scotia talk. Um, we're we'll, soon we'll be moving up to uh, Cape Breton. It's a lovely place, Nova Scotia. I spent my, a lot of my summers <laughs> there when I was growing up because I have an uncle who lives out there, and Danny went to school there. Nova Scotia is great. Mm, I gotta go someday. You gotta go. go. I hear I have relatives there. Yeah, I hear I hear that's where the uh, the German Schaffners landed. Mm, I heard that too. You told me just a couple minutes ago. <laughs> um, hey, so so it's been a long time. We missed we missed a week uh, mm. in our in our uh, recording. And we then, did. We've well, we've missed so many weeks of we miss, posting. But yeah, we missed weeks. Of we posting. were scheduled to record, and then we didn't record. But now we're recording. Now we're recording. We're we're here. It's uh, um, it's a it's a lovely North Carolina morning. Uh, it is dawn. Going to be a hundred degrees today. A hundred. All of the degrees. All of the degrees. We. Like so much that um, many people's thermometers don't reg- will, will not register it. They'll just it'll just show ninety nine because no one you know it's it's too hot. Now, do you have the kind of thermometer where if it gets over a hundred, like like on the cartoons, it like shoots out the top? <laughs> yes. No, I I have the kind of thermometer that registers it in Celsius. So I've still got some room. <laughs> oh, you, got, you got plenty of degrees to go. <laughs> I got lots of degrees to go. Um, well, since, since this is now a weather podcast, I have to share. We, uh, it is, uh, is uh, going to be 83 in New Jersey, and it is overcast and rainy. Oh, it, um, I, wish, I wish for the days. I long for the days of 83 where it was cool at night. Last night, um, I, w- I went outside before uh, I went to bed at uh, like 11 o'clock, and it was 84 degrees. Isn't that crazy? It was, warm, it was mm. hot. It was hot, hot here. It's hot, hot, like, hot like the sun. Mm. Like uh, like they say in Good Morning Vietnam. Um, yeah, so so it's gonna be hot. There's I, I'm currently uh, at my office at uh, five twelve Brookhaven Drive, and outside of my window, there is a um, I, I, my my office is right beside the Arboretum, which is this lovely place uh, on campus where um, it, it, I think you can probably guess from. The title. Uh, there are um, a lot of trees, arbor arbors, uh, as they are known. But outside of the arboretum, uh, maybe two years ago, someone uh, who works for the arboretum decided that an empty lot in between my building and another building that they would start a community garden. And uh, so there are right now about fourteen people outside in the ninety-four degree weather working in this. Uh, um, in this community garden, they look hot. They look very hot. Well, wow, that's very nice. I thought you were going to say um, they decided to put a parking lot in. Oh, they paved paradise. Community garden is uh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, well, <laughs> oh, and and Joni Mitchell died. 
Really? <laughs> I think so. She was in a coma and then she died, right? I think maybe. Wait, are you thinking? Of, didn't she die a long time ago? Well, I mean, uh, who knows when when this is gonna air? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize. <laughs> this is horrible. It's jo- horrible. Breaking news, Don. <laughs> Joni Mitchell died. Yeah. Um, well, um, yeah. There's no parking lot. Although my building. Um, is uh, slated potentially to uh, come down because of the expansion of the expressway that is right beside it. Oh my gosh! Well, it's not expli- It's not. And just clear, just to clear this up, according to Wikipedia, Joni Mitchell is still alive. No, okay, she was in a coma. She, though, right? I think she was in. I think she was. Sick. Yeah, she's very ill. I. Uh, okay, all right. Well, we apologize <laughs> for when this post in six months for spreading rumors. The the. Uh, <laughs> Um, Joni Mitchell, yeah, she's not, she's still there. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so, so the, um, so our, our building is beside the, the Raleigh Beltline and it is expand, is slated to expand sometime over the next couple of years and that will push it potentially directly into our building. No, um, no specific plans are made. So, so we don't know what will happen. It doesn't. I mean, so hey, let's let's talk let's talk a little more about things that we're interested in, like you and I. And okay. I, I'm interviewing you um, okay. now. Have you? Uh, how long have you been in the building that you are currently in? Have you always well, been there? I <laughs> no no. I'm uh, well. I'm currently in my home. Right right. No, not your. <laughs> um, and and I have to say, while we're talking about what we see, I see nothing unremarkable uh, out my windows. But um, I am sitting on my treadmill on a yoga ball, as we have discussed before. Uh, except now, I also have on the treadmill in front of me um, uh, a dog, and you can oh. hear oh, there's yeah. his collar. Is that's, that Brad Michaels? Uh, that's that. <laughs> What a stupid name for a dog! Love um, it. The dog, the dog that some people call Brett Michaels. Um, <laughs> he's a good boy. Uh, the dog, um, fo- formerly known as Brett Michaels. Yeah, yeah. I, we're gonna name him a, for a symbol, like uh, like like Prince. We're just gonna make some unpronounceable uh, hieroglyphic. Is gonna be his name. Um, but that's a good name for a dog. <laughs> unpronounceable hieroglyphic. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So uh, interesting. So 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 right now I'm at my my home where I have not always lived. Uh, I've, I've been here since uh, the early 2000s. But no, the the building where my office is located at Rutgers is is in the uh, food science building, um, which is a 19, built in the 1970s. Now, next to food science is the building formerly known as the Center for Advanced Food Technology. Right. Um, which does not exist as a center anymore. And it's really just basically food science. It's just sort of food science annex. Well, nobody calls it that. Um, and that building was just finished being constructed when I joined Rutgers. So that building was, and, and actually I was waiting for a faculty member to move his lab to that building so I could actually have some lab space. Because as we may have d- talked about before, when I was hired, um, the, the person I replaced had a teaching extension appointment, not a research appointment, and so did not have a laboratory. So um, eventually <clears throat> I got some laboratory space in food science. Um, uh, and and that so that building, the camp building, opened in 1990, I believe, so or 19, 1991 in that time frame. And now, um, just continuing the building theme, we have another building that is slated to open this summer called the Institute for Food, Nutrition, and Health, which nominally brings together uh, food science and nutritional sciences as well, and well, and 
I don't know about brings together, but basically um, is a university-wide institute dealing with issues of food, nutrition, and health. Although, it yeah. Um, what are you? Is, are you part of that thing institute? No. no. So that's no. I am not, and and I don't. It's not. It's not really clear. I don't know. It'll be it'll be a lot more clear once the building opens. But one of the exciting things about the building that I'm very excited about is they are going to have a healthy eating cafe, Ben. Oh. Um, because, as we know, um, people should not eat unhealthy foods, right? Right. Um, and like, like we have a cafeteria in the food science building, uh, which used to be called just the food science cafeteria. And then a number of years ago, it was renamed Dudley's um, because <laughs> our building is on Dudley Road. And ah. someone decided they had a naming contest and they came up with, which is not, actually not a bad name. Actually, that'd be a good name for a dog. Yeah. Um, we're been thinking a lot about good dog names. Dudley, Dudley Michaels. Uh, yeah. Yes. Dudley. Yes. Way better than Brett Michaels. Um, <laughs> Um, and so we're going to have, they're going to have a healthy eating cafe. They're going to close down Dudley's. Um, and then hopefully we can renovate that and then use that as a, um, a, uh, colonology slash teaching laboratory, which we desperately, desperately need. Um, but the, 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 then there's a point to this story. One of the things that they're going to do in the healthy eating cafe is they're going to serve healthy foods. And as we all know, Ben, one of the healthiest foods you can eat is sprouts because they're good for you. Right. Um, and so I was contacted by the university sanitarian to say, hey, look, um, we're going to be he's, – he's tearing his hair out because he has banned uh, sprouts within the university uh, uh, food service you know, because he, he knows them to be – he believes them to be risky. And he's, he's got some valid points there. Um, and, and, he, so he, and we have a testing – as we've talked about before, we have a testing program where we go out and test foods from university dining halls. We also test prospective vendors. And so he brought us some sprout samples for testing. Of course, <clears throat> we tested the samples. They were loaded, loaded, loaded with uh, total plate count, right? Because they're sprouts, right? You can't make sprouts and not have massive counts. So, um, so we found that. But I also wanted to dig a little bit deeper and say, well, where do you get your sprouts from? Well, we get them from uh, a produce company based in New York City. And and I asked the uh, our um, our buyer, our Rutgers University food buyer, um, if she could provide me with information on where the company in New York gets their sprouts and. They named three companies, and one of them, which I was very excited to learn, is Jonathan Sprouts, oh, right? which, which is based yeah. in Massachusetts, which is the yeah. president is Bob Sanderson, right. a longtime IAFP member. And as I have, I think, stated publicly on this podcast uh, and, and, and other places, I would happily eat Bob's Sprouts or Jonathan Sprouts, I guess, <laughs> uh, any day because Bob is like super dedicated to food safety. He's dedicated. He's done a lot of work on uh, irrigation water testing in his facility. He does seed testing. He's been just a real um, advocate for advancing food safety from a risk perspective in sprouts. And so I'm, I'm really excited about that. Now, what we also learned was so, and of course, I didn't know any other than Jonathan's. I didn't know of any either of these other two companies. And sorry, you can probably hear Brett. Uh, Brett Michaels is uh, is scratching himself right now. Um, I won't tell you where because it's a family podcast. <laughs> but um, uh, uh, and and I said to Bob, uh, you know, wh- who are these other two companies, and what are your what's your opinion? He said, well, actually, neither of those companies are Sprouters. Um, they're microgreen companies, and so. Um, 
it's a little unclear to me exactly what it is that we would be buying from these companies because we would. So it sounds like we're getting sprouts from Jonathan Sprouts, but we're getting micro we're getting microgreens from these other companies. Or if we're getting sprouts that are not from Jonathan Sprouts, then um, then we're being misled as to where they're coming from because again, as as Bob said, these other companies don't sell sprouts. They only sell microgreens. So anyway, uh, interesting uh, food safety stuff happening uh, right now in, in the department uh, because we're going to have healthy food. Let's Hey, let's talk about <laughs> – that's good. Let's talk about microgreens. Okay, I don't. I really don't know much about microgreens, so maybe, um, maybe I could interview you about microgreens, <laughs> Ben. What are microgreens? You know, I, Don, I don't really know. I mean, I, I guess I, I do know a little bit about them. Um, are they are I, are they green and small? small? Yeah, they're micro. They're not, are they microscopic? They're a little larger than nano greens. Okay, um, but not as big as macro greens, right? And I mean, a mega green, you couldn't <laughs> even you couldn't even hold a candle to that. Um, <laughs> So I I guess the, this is what I mean I, I I get the sense that sprouts and microgreens are are similar although microgreens are not um sprouted seeds I guess they are like they are sprouted mm. legumes maybe okay. so um so this is what what I have and I'm I ask you this question cuz we're we're going to start to look a little bit at microgreens mm. um so they are um, okay. Seeds sprouts are technically s- like seeds, and right. the microgreens are not always grown from seed. So you would start the seed, and then you would like mow down your microgreen lawn. Okay, and then you would har- that would be your harvest. Okay, and then you would sell that, and then those microgreens would continue to grow. Oh, okay. So, so it's not like you're not starting a seed every time. Got it. Um, which I think is, I, I, I mean, I don't know, and I can't. There's not a whole lot in the literature on it, but I think that that's got to impact the, the risk profile because going back to our conversations about Jonathan Sprouts and Bob Sanderson and stuff that we've talked about before, seed stock matters so much in sprouts. Well, now here you have only one seed for multiple harvests, as opposed to every sprout comes from one seed in a sprout. Does that does that make right. sense to you? Right. Yeah. And yeah. And then the, the other thing too was that part part of this discussion with uh, the buyer at Rutgers was that um, uh, that that all of these uh, or you know I don't know I have to go back and look at the email message, but apparently they were good because they were hydroponic. <laughs> so which doesn't make sense to no. me. How would a microgreen be hydroponic because you, my sense is they have to have an ori- – if you're going to mow them down, they have to have an orientation, right? Right. I, and so I, if you're going to grow – could you grow them hydroponically? Yes. Oh, you could? Yes, yes, okay. you can. So are, they, are they only grown hydroponically? I, or? I, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. The ones that I'm familiar with are. So oh, okay. so hydroponic – so um, you know, back in the day when I started doing food safety stuff – it was with hydroponic production of tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and, and a little bit of lettuce. Mm-hmm. And so hydroponic, there are lots of different types of hydroponic. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, there needs to be some sort of substrate or media for the roots system to go through. So it really just means you're putting a whole bunch of water with lots of nutrients through this media that's not soil. 
And sometimes you can have like with um, with leafy greens, for instance, there there are little like plugs that you would start your leafy green seedling in, and the the roots would just sit in these round kind of plugs, and the water would go um, continuously over the root system. But with um, tomatoes, and I think leafy greens, you or not leafy greens, microgreens, you're putting them into something like cocoa wool or rock wool or other substrate that allows a lot of water to go over them. So so essentially you can mow them because the root system is what ties them to the to that media allows you to to just cut it as opposed to um you know pull them out by the root every time. Okay, and is that <clears throat> is that um substrate that they're growing in is that organic or inorganic? I it depends. I don't okay. know. I mean, I guess that's the question that I don't know right now with microgreens is it may it could probably be both. So mm-hmm. like the like cocoa wool or it's mm-hmm. it comes I mean it's based it's from coconut. So mm-hmm. it's an organic source. Mm-hmm. Uh but I think that they then use like a compost tea in their hydroponic system which which would drastically increase the risk potential if it's well, not and- Com- and, like composted, correctly. yeah, and and coconut has been linked to salmonella as well. Right, so, right. Um, yeah, and I guess the question in all of this is: so, what's the quality of the raw materials, both in terms of the seed, both in terms of the substrate? Um, what what do you have a testing program in place? I mean, one of the things that we've learned through our ongoing research with cross contamination, and actually we published some stuff on uh, on on uh, sprouting as well in, in a small chamber. It basically, as you as you move things around, you know, wa- basically water is what causes cross contamination, right? So if you if you have a lot of wa- water, you're moving bacteria around, and so I can right. imagine a scenario. And again, you've got nutrients, right? Nutrients for the plants. Well, guess what? Nutrients for the plants are nutrients for microorganisms too. That's the whole principle behind. Why um, and of course uh, my uh, my lawn crew is here, so it's going to be it's going to be noisy. So you, you can probably talk for a while in a little bit. But um, you know the, that's the whole nature of the sprouting process um, is that because these sprouting seeds release nutrients uh, into the water, uh, that's what causes if there are pathogens present. That's what present. That's what causes them to grow. So I don't know. I mean, so hydroponic, you, you uh, naively, you might say, well, I'm growing them hydroponically. I'm not growing them on that nasty, dirty old soil. Right. I'm growing them on nice, clean water. But really, it just it just ups the stakes because if, if things, yes, if you're doing things correctly, maybe you can get a higher microbiological quality. But really, you're controlling everything. So you better be darn sure that you're really well and truly managing this. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, we, you know, back in the day, we didn't publish any of this stuff, but we did do a bunch of um, uh, testing on water samples from recirculated hydroponic um, water. That you know, because of the hydrop- because of how the nutrients need to move, that recirculation, I mean, essentially means that this water it, it is, I mean, not treated for micro. And that was back, I mean, that was back 10 years ago. I don't know if, if that's changed much in the hydroponic um, industry now. But but absolutely, that, you know, that, that water can facilitate pathogen movement. And almost all of the um, leafy green um, internalization through root systems to leaves work 
that I know of, you know, going back to some of the stuff that Larry Beauchat did 15 years ago, I think was done with simulated hydroponic systems where you would have really high, um, you know, prevalence of, of a pathogen in that water system. And that was like, you know, um, from a outside soil source, not a realistic uh, amount, but in a in indoor or in a managed hydroponic system, maybe high enough that, and then that was the the stuff that that did show, um, you know, the chance for that internalization through the, um, you know, through the the plant system. Um, so I looked up just so while we're while you were talking a little bit on microgreens to give folks a sense of what types of products are there. And so there's a company I just found, um, you know, with the uh, with the Google um, situation, uh, a place called Fresh Fresh Origins, and they talk about they have a, an extensive variety list over 115 different types of microgreens, and some of them are things like Michael micro basil nutmeg, micro cucumber, um, and it's really it's I mean it's just leaves it's the greens micro mustard Dijon micro radish ruby micro tangerine lace um, and so it, you, you know you, I guess of all the edible plants that you can think of there is probably a micro green market um, out there on their their website and again this is uh, freshorigins.com they do talk I guess very briefly about um, food safety. And uh, so they have a little spot on their website that says they've made a major commitment to food safety. This is a discipline we've instilled in each member of our team. All of our activities are done with food safety compliance as a priority. They're third-party certified food safety in each of the three main areas of food handling. So they talk about greenhouse production and harvest crew and packing house operations. And, uh, and they have really good scores. And, you know, as we, we've talked about limitations of that in the past. And they're also a proud member in good standing of the California Leafy Greens Marketing Agreement. Um, so they have field audits. Uh, they don't really talk much about food safety beyond that. Um, so, no, but but that's but that's better than nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. And and they, and they have a very beautiful uh, looking website. So, um, you know, big points for that. Yes, lovely, lovely. So interesting the microgreen area. I mean, we haven't seen we haven't seen any illnesses um, that 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 I know of that I you know that have been directly linked to microgreens that uh, that I can you know find out with a quick Google. But my guess is you know just like just like everything that that we see with new niche markets, new niche products, that there are probably folks at at FDA and you know maybe state. Um, Agencies that are looking at uh, at this type of product to see if there's any um, you know issue microbiologically micro micro with the micro yeah well and and you know there's a reason why we have um, lots of food poisoning outbreaks from tomatoes and lettuce that's because we eat lots of tomatoes and lettuce right we don't as a society as a culture eat a lot of microgreens um and you know increasingly we eat a lot of sprouts as well but but so really it's you know in terms of finding those outbreaks or seeing a problem it's not about whether you have any outbreaks it's really about how common the food item is and, and especially we know you know the way epidemiology works if you don't ask people a question on a survey like it'd be real interesting to know um do people like let's say minnesota on that minnesota survey um that teamed 
diarrhea administers to people that have uh, food poisoning, um, are microgreens listed? Or how would you even know that, right? Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, it's like, well, I ate, um, you know, again, I'm looking at this food safety, uh, I'm looking at this food safety uh, page on, on Fresh Origins, and it's calamari. It's like, well, I ate calamari with some flowers on it, right. um, and I got sick. You know, does that count? I mean, so, you know, uh, and there was one that, that uh, on the on the 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 home screen, the splash uh, splash page or whatever you call it, uh, there was a wonderful picture of some delicious looking raw tuna with microgreens on top. So, you know, how do you? I I suspect in a lot of cases, microgreens are eaten as part of something else. And so, even if let's say microgreen microgreens are causing outbreaks, we might not even know it just because there's not much consumed and the amounts are small and it's in other dishes. And so, you know, it's, it's not an easy problem to, to solve, but I mean, Hey, at least they're, uh, they got a page on their website that talks about food safety. Yes, yeah, exactly. they they appear to be paying attention. Also, I mean, just thinking about the epidemiology, um, side of things, I wonder if microgreens are really in the eyes of those who are doing investigating, really just leafy greens. I mean, you've got a, someone who said, okay, well, our company is part of the leafy green marketing agreement. They're already identifying themselves as leafy greens. Um, so to be able to pull out the difference between romaine and you know baby spinach and microgreens, it may just all go into one big box of, are you eating leafy greens? Hey, yeah. and, um, and our friends, uh, David Golden and Faith Kreitzer, uh, after doing a little Googling here, um, have, have done some work in uh, looking at uh, Aztec survival in microgreens. Ah, look at that. Yeah. So there, so there you go. So there's our, there's our microgreens. So, so you get, I mean, here's the real applied side of this is you, you did a little digging on behalf of Rutgers, found out that someone who said that they were selling sprouts really isn't selling sprouts and they're probably supplying microgreens. And that is an area that we don't have a whole lot of data around. And where, where it comes to sprouts you know, like like you said before the their supplier for the sprouts is someone that um has you know you, you have a lot of confidence in in from, yes. a, from a food safety standpoint and yep. so so that, i mean but that's the this is a real thing that that maybe some of our listeners deal with every day i was just um i was just talking to a bunch of retailers who have you know 200,000 different products that they sell and the unrealistic part of things is that I think they should know about the food safety risks associated with all 200,000 products that they sell. And they need to figure out how to manage that within their purchasing and, and buying process. And, and I'm sure microgreens is, is one, of, one of the things where five years ago, 10 years ago, the product didn't exist. And now we've got to worry about how do we manage food safety when we don't have a lot of data on it. Um, so this, I mean, this is a real, this is a real deal. This was, this is the kind of stuff that happens. Yeah. Hey, and, uh, so, so speaking of managing food safety, when you don't have a lot of data, um, one of the things that we talked about when we, when we did our a, a very extensive preparation for the show, um, which basically <laughs> consisted of me sending you a text message saying, Hey, I want to talk about this. Perfect. Um, so I, later on today, uh, I am traveling to Washington DC where I'm going to be attending a, uh, meeting, um, where I will see a friend of the show and listener of the show, uh, Linda Harris. Um, 
And it is uh, a meeting organized by the uh, Produce Marketing Association, and it is a produce safety policy conference. And basically, what the what I've been tasked to speak about is. Um, uh, well, the title of the talk that I've been given is Assessing Public Health Risk for Produce-Associated Listeria Monocytogenes Exposure. So, so really, the, the, the meeting is about listeria and fresh produce. As you know, uh, Ben, we've had a couple of well-publicized outbreaks, listeria outbreaks associated with produce, most recently caramel apples, but Prior to that, uh, Jensen Farms cantaloupe. Uh, there was a stone fruit uh, outbreak. So those sort of events loom very, very big in the uh, uh, in the in the in the food safety area for fresh produce and listeria. Um, and so I wanted to get your advice for and and again. So this is going to be basically uh, produce people, uh, produce industry people, and I've got to to talk to them about uh, food safety and and. And I guess nominally convince them that risk assessment would be uh, an important part of uh, whatever they do. And, and when, when I say risk assessment, I really mean quantitative yeah. microbial risk assessment um, should be an important part of whatever uh, their strategy and their action plan is for, for food safety. So um, do you have any advice for me? Um, yeah, tell them that. <laughs> okay. Tell them, tell them that uh... – I don't know. I, so thanks for for including this discussion and sending me some stuff to to look at mm -hmm. before. I think that um, I, I know that the produce industry is struggling with this, and I know that um, that FDA. If we if we look at those those four eighty threes, like we've talked about in some previous episodes um, that have been that especially going back to to Jensen, um, in a situation like an outbreak. Uh, a packing facility specifically uh, is being looked at as a processing facility. And the the issue that I think FDA is focusing on is whether the listeria that are in these packing facilities, if it's there, is it transient or is it resident? And so it, I, I don't think we know the answer to that very well. I think that... Um, that it, when when it comes to having some sort of model or um, you know some quantitative risk assessment that can help lead to where should policy go, we there. Are, this is one to me where there's a whole bunch of assumptions and we have a lot of data holes, and and I, I don't I'm not in your world as much as you are. But I, to me, this this one looks like there's way more data gaps than than other things that that you might have looked at before. So I think it it would be important to to focus on what are those data gaps specifically to to LM in in the environment. And there's some. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting to look at uh, at this document and go back in history um, where there was a. Um, you might have been involved in this one, the 2003 FDA um, listeria risk assessment. Were you were you part of that? I, I was not. I think I may have reviewed it at some point, but no. Those those federal risk assessments tend to well, they they tend to have federal people. But I know, like uh, no, I know that like uh, Dan Gallagher, 
who's a, a risk modeling yeah. guy, was involved. But no, I've never, I've never been asked to uh, to be involved. Well, it's so that one, it's it's interesting, right? Because in here they they talk about how in 2003, fresh fruits and vegetables were deemed as sort of low risk for because there wasn't, um, you know, th- there wasn't demonstration of growth of listeria in in these products, and and although prevalence might be there. Um, we we just didn't have a history of illnesses and now i mean 12 years later there's more data that would that might change that and um sophie cathario i don't know if she's involved in uh in this meeting um today but but she's done some work in the last year or so looking at growth of listeria on the outside of cantaloupes which no one really looked at wow. it before, right? I, I thought people had looked at it, and it doesn't grow. Well, is that not right? No, I mean, there's that. I mean, as far as I understand, this is the the stuff that she did. She took the um, the Jensen Farm outbreak strain and, and a couple other strains and showed growth on the outside of a cantaloupe at room temperature. Whoa! Yeah, so like stuff like that. So that so I guess the risk assessment is is absolutely necessary but a a very valuable discussion to have is what don't we know and what are the assumptions that we're making and are those truly valid assumptions or are we just making those assumptions because the data doesn't exist right now um and i i don't know i mean i'm I'm sure that's i'm sure that's what you do with you know with this all the time but but that one is just drastically important i think um and there's you know this idea of low mean infectious dose stuff for uh if we look at the bluebell outbreak which seems to be the case if you look at the cdc um information it just like and, and in fact they highlight it here um in in their uh in their document i think that that's going to be important on if it's a policy setting, it's well. What is it? What's our food safety objective here? How 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 low are we looking to go? And and, and knowing that um, that other you know this this concept that other countries have you know don't have zero tolerance for listeria. Uh, right. Well, and so a cu- couple of things. So number one, um, thanks for reminding me that that 2003 risk assessment ranked listeria as low risk because I think that would be very important information to share with this audience to show that guess what? Risk assessments can be wrong or they can be um, uh, not you know, fully consider all the available information. And so again, and I've, I've talked about this before when I, when I lecture, I think I've talked about it before on the podcast too. I liken risk assessment to a map, right? A map is an abstract representation of reality. It may or it may not be correct. And, and so we need to treat it as a valuable and useful tool, but we should also not treat it as the truth. And so I think that is a very, very important point. And, 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 Bringing up that 2003 risk assessment, uh, I think would would be would be really really useful information. Now, um, the 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 work that Sophia is doing is fascinating, and has that that has not been published yet, right? No, I think she's presenting it, or one of her students is presenting it in uh, at IAFP this summer. Okay, she, she shared it at a, and I I could get it for you, I'm sure. She shared it at our um, state task force on food safety and defense um, annual meeting this year. Just yeah, that like would be, three weeks ago that or a month be, ago. That would be great. And, you know, and that's one of the things, too, that it points out. Um, uh, and I'm going to make this 
point with my with when I talk about dose response modeling, there is apparently pretty big strain to strain variability right. in listeria, right? And so, yeah, if you went out and you got uh, generic uh, ATCC listeria or heaven forbid Scott A, which, you know, please, please, everyone, let's stop. Let's agree. Let's all stop doing research with Scott A um, uh, and, and, and got the Jensen Farms outbreak strain or strains. And actually there were multiple strains in that outbreak. Um, uh, and then let's look at how that uh, you know that variability impacts, let's say, growth on the outside of, of cantaloupe, and that, and again, that's not something that we've done with cantaloupe, and we're not doing anything with listeria right now. But we are very interested in growth on the surface of uh, growth of salmonella on the surface of tomatoes, right? And and I think really a key, and obviously one of the things that we know for cross contamination modeling is that uh, moisture is important. Well, I think what's going to be end up being really important for growth modeling is uh, on, on the surface of things that we commonly think of as not supporting growth really is relative humidity of the environment. Yes. So, you know, so, so those two things, what's the relative humidity of the environment and what are, what, what are the nature of the strains that you're using? Um, these are things that, you know, 20 years ago, food microbiologists would not have thought about and, and that, that we are realizing are, are increasingly important. And, and, you know, and part of, part of what I'm going to talk about is, this whole idea of uh, like, why would you do a risk assessment if you don't have information? Well, yes, that, but yeah. but but here's the thing: you you make the information you you use the best information that you have. If you don't have data, you use expert opinion. You make some assumptions. If you think there's some uncertainty in those assumptions, you 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 can the the risk assessment will let you compare this assumption versus that mm. assumption and and again it, it, it risk assessments are iterative and they can be they can be changed um uh, but you know uh, and certainly i'm i'm definitely planning on talking about the growth of uh, listeria on cut melons because oh, yeah. we've done some research on that and and it doesn't take much uh, temperature abuse um or, or much time before you can get a significant increase and so you know if you and and the thing about uh, melon uh, cantaloupe in particular, you know, you can temperature abuse it and it looks just fine, right? Absolutely. And, it, and it may taste just fine too, but man, it could be loaded with listeria. So, so there's, there's a lot to, to talk about. And one of the other things too, that I want to talk about is there's a lot, often there is a natural inclination when you don't have data is to say, well, let's do a qualitative risk assessment. Don't or, do that. Don't do that. Yeah. Well, right. That would be my, my advice is like, there's some problems with that. And then the other thing too, uh, talking with, uh, uh, Jim Gorney, who's my, my contact on, 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 uh, this meeting is, uh, you know, one of the things that he said is the industry will tell you that they are already doing risk assessment, um, but they are not. <laughs> they are doing hazard analysis, and they think they are doing risk assessment. And so part of my job is to, number one, tell them risk assessment is good, and number two, tell them that they are not doing risk assessment, and then three, to tell them, okay, here's what you need to be doing, and here's here's why it matters, and here's why it's useful. Now, the, the good news is, is that we have examples from a number of places, um, including um, 
the Almond Board of California, working with uh, almonds, obviously, and that wasn't a food that supports growth, but, but trying to establish a, um, a appropriate risk reduction measure. Um, we know that um, uh, FDA is already using quantitative microbial risk assessment. USDA FSIS already using quantitative microbial risk assessment. Some large food companies, um, you know, meat companies, have talked to me about the risk assessments that they're doing. So, so they're, they're, th- th- these are tools that are being used, um, but um, the, so the industry really needs to get on board so at least they can have the dialogue and speak the language uh, that, the regu- that the regulators are speaking. So, um, and yeah, and I think some of the key questions, some of the key data needs are what are prevalence and concentration? What do we know about yes. growth, survival, cross-contamination? We've got uh, a couple of grant proposals. I've got a couple of grant proposals that I'm uh, a co-PI on that are out for review right now looking at – like we, we know, we know, for example, that packing houses um, have equipment in them that are really not appropriate, right? We saw this with Jensen Farms, um, where basically they just were inoculating every cantaloupe that went out of that facility. So we know that packing houses are not properly designed. But we also know that we cannot snap our fingers and immediately overnight um, just completely um, renovate all our packing houses, right? So we have to go for, again, let's take a risk-based approach. What are the worst surfaces in a packing house? And let's get rid of them first. Well, how do we know which ones are worse? Well, part of the way we could know that is by doing some research and 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 basically ranking them in, in terms of risk of, of cross-contamination. So, so again, there are some things I think that we can do, um, but exa- figuring out exactly what to do and also really selling the the industry on the need to do it because it's not it's going to cost money right i mean some of it is being funded hopefully by usda maybe some by fda um uh, some of it by the industry themselves but but you know they're going to have to to spend at least some money um to to get started on this right um so i this is like a, a perfect kismet of things that we do together uh so i last week um a couple of people that that are listed here on um you know on the pma document uh or at least one bob whitaker was actually at this retailer meeting that i was at and i talked um i I guess uh, extensively for about 15 minutes about cantaloupe and food safety and listeria and using your and I, i texted you last week about um your model, your Michelle and you, the model that you use that I'm sure you're going to talk about on mm-hmm. growth of uh, listeria and cut, uh, melons, which is so drastically important for for our consumer messaging. I what I'm, what I made the case to the retailers and, and to Bob was, we tell people specifically in USDA, FDA, the consumer messaging around um, uh, deli meats is. If you open deli meat, you you should not use it after three to five days. In three to five days, I have problems with anyway, right? Like, is it three? Is it four? Is it five? Whatever. Um, But when it comes to cantaloupe, um, the consumer messaging that we have, and I just sent you um, some slides on this, um, the, the consumer messaging that we have says things like, do not store cut cantaloupe at room temperature for any length of time. Okay, that's good. Sliced melon should be stored in the refrigerator until it's ready to be eaten. What does that mean? Like from now that we know that listeria can grow on cantaloupes at refrigeration temperatures and you have this this great model that was published like a year ago, 
why is it that we are still telling people that they can keep cantaloupe in their fridge for as long as they want? Right. Like that's it's it's frustrating to me. Right. Like we talk about this risk based system for you know risk management communication decisions. We you know we we work on the research behind that. And, and here we have very good data and very good, a very good model that says this product is the same or similar. I shouldn't say it's the same, similar to, to deli meats, except we have two different messages. And really, we want people to handle it like they would deli meats. Right. Ah. Oh. Right. <laughs> and, and, but I guess the, I don't know, maybe I'm getting cynical as I get further into this. I, I, why does it? Why is it our? Why does it take us to do that? Right? Like, and maybe maybe that sounds, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe that that sounds too um, arrogant around around this. But but I, I feel like the produce industry has the same access to the science that you publish, and they actively should be looking for that kind of information and lobbying. Or at least changing their messages based on something that's been out there for for a while now to say, look, we can't have people exposing themselves to um, to risk, and we have to give them all the information. And and I'm I, there's a lot of comparisons here that that I'm probably being trite with, but but to me this this is one that um, that matters, and the data is there to tell people, okay, you need to handle this product a little bit differently. And so I, I got into a conversation with you know a retailer after I made these comments. And and the the comment that they made was, well, what does FDA say? And I said they don't say anything. I mean, they don't. You know, they're they're not they're not out there changing their message. And they said, well, we won't probably change ours until FDA or USDA changes theirs. That's exactly the wrong. You want to be out in front of the regulatory agency. You want to be leading them. Yeah. Yeah, the meets government standards, right? I mean, that's one of Doug's favorite uh, hobby horses, right? Meets government standards. Yeah. So what? So what? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and especially when the science is there, and and so I'll, I um, I gave you a, a couple of slides here. One um, looking at um, and I'll send you the documents too in case you're interested. But mm-hmm. uh, Catherine Cosa from RTI published some work on consumer refrigerator behaviors in 2007, and it was some self-reported data. Um, but it's got some stuff in here that, that, I mean, blatantly says people don't know what the temperature of their fridge is. 11% of all re- respondents to a 2000 person national survey said that they had a thermometer in their, in, in their refrigerator. And, and so we, we asked people, so that extrapolated to, well, what's the temperature of consumer fridges? We don't really know, but there is a nice meta analysis that came out in 2007 as well. Or sorry, 2012 that that looked at a whole bunch of different data sources for refrigerator temperatures and in Celsius, and I'll have to get you the document on this, and we can link to it in in show notes. But but basically, um, the temperature abuse stand standpoint, twenty um, percent of uh, of the total number of refrigerators that were uh, surveyed showed. Um, you know, temperatures in between six degrees and, and six point nine degrees Celsius, 50, almost just less than fifteen percent showed temperatures in between seven degrees Celsius and eight degrees Celsius, and and, and so you've got maybe forty five plus percentage of the refrigerators out there are are not are, are temperature abusing food. Sorry to 
rant too much on this, but right. It's, well, and 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 but so now and just to not to defend the industry, but let me just push back a little bit, right? Sure. Because we have this uh, graph um, of this figure from from Daniluk et al. 2014, um, uh, which you know we've talked about many times before, uh, figure three in the manuscript, which is a contour plot for the effective temperature. Um, it's a contour plot that has temperature on the y-axis, it has time on the x-axis, and then contour lines for log increases in listeria. And so the question, Ben, is given the information that you gave me um, on refrigerator temperatures, um, uh, what, what should we be telling people? is the time to store a cantaloupe in the fridge. I think we should be telling people that it should be three to five days like we do with deli meats. Okay. I mean, I think that that's the, that if we look at your, your contour plot and we mm -hmm. can say that um, the, the assumption based on, on the data that's out there that, um, uh, um, that, that there are many, you know, maybe up to 40% of fridges that are at eight degrees Celsius or, mm -hmm. or above that, at two, uh, you, you, you see a two log reduction at four or two log increase of listeria on cut cantaloupes after four days. Right. And, and so that, I mean, the risk management decision is, well, what's the limit for log or log increase that we're, that we find acceptable. Right. Um, and, and you know, we would, we've, I guess, arbitrarily, maybe not arbitrarily, but we've picked that same, uh, growth for, for open deli meat. So, right. so why not why not the same for for cantaloupe? Right. Well, and now let me let me ask you this. Now, could you as a as a risk communication guy, is this too complex a risk message, right? If the, if the if so so it's a two-parter, right? Yes. First part is if you don't know the temperature of your fridge, we recommend you keep cantaloupe and deli meats no more than 2 days. Yes. If you know the temperature of your fridge is 5 degrees or less, you can keep them for four days, right? And is and that is that is that too complicated a message? No, I mean, okay. not not not. No, not. I don't think so. And okay. I think, I mean, we are. If let, let's look at mechanically tenderized beef as a as something that that um, is problematic from a risk communication standpoint. We tell people with that, uh, as per the you know the new rules for labeling and labels don't work. But we tell them in the messaging that if you're going to cook a steak. Uh, that's mechanically comes from mechanically tenderized beef. You need to cook it to 145 degrees, um, and you need to flip it twice. So it's a two-part message, and in fact, it's a three-part message because first you have to identify: Do you have mechanically tenderized beef? So I don't. I guess I don't know the answer on whether those messages are effective or not. Mm -hmm. But but those are science-based messages, and that's right. what we should exactly. be doing. Exactly. Yeah. Well, good luck with this meeting. I'm glad you you wanted to talk about it because I think this is. I, I'm I'm very glad that that PMA is hosting this meeting. I hope that what comes out of it is a quantitative risk assessment that shows a roadmap for here are things we do know, here are the things we don't know, and then that roadmap goes back to um, you know, USDA, FDA, and, and maybe the Center for Produce Safety to say you really need to fill in these gaps, right? Um, to to help move forward here, right? One of the other things before we leave this that Michelle Daniluk and I encountered a couple of years ago with FDA related to um, to listeria in cantaloupe packing facilities was, like you'd mentioned, the, the equipment um, question, the equipment situation in those packing facilities, and the problem related to 
creating a clean break, a, a sanitation clean break in those facilities and lotting and not really having good practical guidance on how to, to, to establish that risk management decision. And, and, and it's, it's you know, largely for Listeria reasons because of this whole thing we started with one transient versus re, you know, resident. But you know, the, the challenge is we have equipment that's really hard to clean and sanitize that costs a lot of money that, um, that the producers believe, and, and I can say this with you know, at, at least going back two years with, with some validity with the, with the work that we did with um, the cantaloupe packing facilities that we worked with, they believe that cleaning and sanitizing their line every night with a power washer is establishing a sanitation clean break where FDA would say, no, you're not because you need to get rid of all of the niche areas that exist on every roller. Um, and especially those rollers that, uh, you know, as you described with, with Jensen may be inoculating every cantaloupe that go along it. And, and there's a, there's a disconnect between the the industry and it's and it's not the people that are going to be at, at this meeting with you it's it's the the practitioners the the packers and, and the growers that yes they've been told that cleaning and sanitation is important yes we have the right compounds but there's still a misunderstanding that what you know what they're doing is not protecting them from you know from, from a, a recall or a large public health um, issue and that's a pol- that's a policy issue and I apologize right. that there's a lot of giggling uh, in the office next to me because we, although we have a lot of um, funds for food safety talk, um, we have not soundproofed our offices yet. <laughs> well, and I, you know, I was hearing that noise, and uh, I think it, I, I think I was hearing. I wasn't sure if it was coming from you or coming from me. And I so I took my headphones off for a minute, and it sounded like there was some noise in my background. So I did go and and shut the door to to my office. Um, so yeah, so you know, if if there's any if there's a you know if there's a sugar daddy out there, um, you know, that wants to set us up in real professional uh, offices, uh, you know, we're listening. Yes, exactly. Not not too well because there's a lot of background noise, but we're listening as best we can, and so please do let us know. Right, right, right. It, we're we're ready. We're ready to do it. We're ready to uh, to to really make it. Well, you know, we're ready for the food safety talk studios, aren't we? Yes, yes. So, oh, and speaking of studios, so um, <laughs> I was supposed to visit uh, the Five by Five studios uh, when I was in Austin uh, last week. Right. Oh, again? And you were in Austin? I was in Austin again. Yes, I was in Austin again. Uh, actually, thanks. A big shout out to Alex Castillo from Texas A&M, uh, who invited me to the Texas affiliate of IAFP. Oh, excellent. Uh, so I went last week. I was in New Orleans for the uh, ASM annual meeting um, to attend the uh, AEM uh, editor's uh, dinner and, and editorial board breakfast, and then just a quick trip to uh, New Orleans, uh, New Orleans, as they Orleans, say, yes. um, and then um, on to uh, Austin, uh, and and Dan and Hattie uh, were, the plan was originally they were going to have me on um, and visit the studios, and then uh, like it just got, it just got to be too crazy a day, but then they very, very graciously um, took time out of their busy schedules after Dan put his kids to bed, and we went out for uh, for barbecue. Oh, awesome. So great, great talk with them. Uh, just, just fantastic. Fantastic, uh, wonderful, wonderful people, and uh, just really, just a really nice uh, visit. So Austin's a very cool city. Uh, once again, uh, uh, I've, I've learned that and uh, and had a real nice visit with them. But I didn't get to see the studios. If we if we did build food safety talk studios, I think they would have to be in Austin. 
I, I agree. That's part of the deal, right? That is. Like, we would just move to Austin to, for, the, for the show. I mean, that's why Dan moved there. Right. Right. Like that's, exactly. It is the place to be. I, so, you know, we, Danny and I went to Austin in the fall, and we had two days where we ate five meals. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I have. Oh, two days where you ate five meals each day. Each day. Each day. Yeah. Because we, we got up, and then we were like, well, we might as well go to a, you know, taco truck. For, for some breakfast tacos, uh-huh. and and then well we need something else, and then it's lunchtime, and then you know let's eat dinner, and then after dinner it's like wow I really wish we had had some barbecue today, and we didn't, so that happened twice, uh, so ten meals in in two days, which is excessive I think, um, but I we we miss. Uh, and, and every time we, we get tacos somewhere, um, we reminisce back to Torchy's Tacos. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you go to Torchy's? Do you know about you Did know about? not go to Torchy's. Torchy's is awesome. Apparently, it used to only be a truck. And then now huh. they have some brick-and-mortar places. But they have a queso that is that is to die for, okay. as, as Danny would, would say. Nice. Yeah. Um, Hey. No, we we went to we went to Cabo Taco. Cabo Taco, which is, which is like a it's sort of like a it's a chain because there's two restaurants in the chain. It's a, it's an Austin specific thing, and it's kind of like Austin's answer to Chipotle, and it was actually pretty uh, pretty good. And then we had uh, uh, we went to a great uh, barbecue place whose name is escaping me at the moment, but it was also very good. So uh, yeah, had some good good Tex Mex and some good barbecue there. Oh, friggin' Austin, love that place. It's like I would love to just go on vacation to Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going on vacation to, to Portland or sort yes. of vacation, food safety vacation, nerd yes. camp, yes. which, of which also I'm looking, looking forward to. Um, Hey, so since we talk about food safety and we talk about risk and we talk about how to communicate risk and how to manage risk, that's kind of our thing, right? Can we talk yeah. about hairnets? Oh yes. You mentioned this in our extensive show preparations that you wanted to talk about hairnets. I, 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 could, I am so ready to talk about hairnets. Are are you so ready that you're wearing a hairnet? I'm well. I'm wearing I'm wearing my headphones, and they are they are oh, a serving restraint. as a partial hairnet, like because of the the top of my head, the hairs right on the top, um, um, would be restrained by the headphones. Well, it's a I think as per the food code, you might uh, it might be a hair restraint that you've got there. Good job. Mm, yes. um, okay, so I was at this retail meeting, and mm. I don't know. I'm not going to mention names. I don't know if this was like open or closed or whatever. But um, I, I gave a talk, and then I got to um, lead a couple of small group discussions with retailers. And, and so my talk was a little ranty. And, you know, I, I talked about this cantaloupe stuff, and um, I talked about, um, you know, uh, whole genome sequencing and how that's a game changer and everyone needs to pay attention to it. And then I talked about consumer advisories and, and blah, blah, blah. And in the, the breakout session, we, we got talking about how to create a food safety culture because that's still the buzzword. And then I got on a, kind of another rant about how when everyone talks about food safety culture now, it's not really what we published about. And then I got like – and I, I'm of split mind on this. One is I love that that's how the internet works, right? Like you come up with something – or you're part of something at the start, and it morphs over time, and then you lament it a little bit because it's not really what you were talking about. So, but it's so I, I don't know. I recognize those those two things. And there's a there's a guy I'd like you to meet um, who coined the term inbox zero, who feels the same way about that term. By the way, well, Just funny so you, you know. say that. I'm going to meet him. Are you? I am going to meet that guy, Captain Inbox Zero. 
Um, so, so it's, so anyway, that, that, that happened. And, um, then we, we got talking in these small groups about things that are part of a food safety culture in the eyes of a retail CEO and things that are not part of a food safety culture in the eyes of that same company's food safety people and hairnets were one of them. And so the, the discussion was, uh, you know, they, the, the people that we want to have on board that really drive our food safety culture value system, they respond to perceived risks similar to what we, I, what we, you and I would probably talk about as real risks, although that's maybe even arrogant, as data-driven public health risk factors. Mm. And hair nets and hair restraints being one. So, so one retailer shared with with the group that they have been dealing with this you know issue of hair nets, and that they they you know their consumers want to see people wearing hair nets, but they don't want to see them wearing white hair nets because it looks like they're the lunch lady, and so they went to hats, and but the hats weren't doing their their job, and the the FDA says that it's a hair restraint, and blah 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 blah, and it was a fifteen minute discussion on hair nets, and at the end I said. Because I got to you know run the mic, and I was like, "How much time do you spend on hairnets as a risk management issue compared to how much time you spend on norovirus?" And and, and why are are and, and and why is it that you're spending so much time on something that that I would say that it is not it does not carry a significant public health risk compared to something like you know like hand washing or bare hand contact or employee health, uh, you know, um, policy and that kind of thing. And the, the very practical answer that came back was because that's what the CEO sees as an issue. So what do we, what do we do, Don? How do we, how do we take the data that we have and the tools that we have as, you know, risk assessors and risk communicators to communicate to the folks that really control the operations budget that they should focus on food safety risks or, or and, and, and let me rephrase that risk factors for foodborne illness it's a it was a challenge i don't i mean i didn't have a really good answer for it but but i i, I don't know am i am i seeing it Am I seeing it wrong or am I seeing it differently than, than the way you would? I mean, do you really, do you really care about hairnets? Because I don't really care about them. Do I care about hairnets? No. Um, do, do I want hair in my food? Absolutely not. Right. Um, are hairnets easy to measure? Absolutely. You just walk into the restaurant, you look around, and you count up how many people there are and then how many of them have hair restraints. And if they don't have hair restraints, then, you know, that's a demerit, right? Or whatever, right? So, so hairnets are easy to measure. And, and I think of that a lot of times in anything, but in food safety in particular, we focus on things that are easy to measure. Why, why do we focus so much on temperature? Because it's easy to measure. Why do we not focus on time as a public health control yeah. because as what bacteria care about our temperature and time because time is is damn hard to measure right because you've got to be there at the beginning you got to be there at the end um, you've got to you know you you how do, how do we you know how do we track uh, movement of foods through time or temperature through time well that's all really complicated stuff so 
on the one hand, I get why people focus on hairnets. Um, I guess what so, it, but it sounds like in the particular story that you told, it sounds like the problem is the CEO, right? Yes. And so, what I would say is that CEOs they might not understand food safety, but they probably understand money. So what I would do is I would say, okay, how much are we spending on hairnets? How much are we spending on hairnet compliance? How much are we spending on hairnet compliance training? How, you know, let's figure out the total dollar amount of our obsession every year on hairnets, okay? And then let's figure out um, what that's doing um, in terms of like, well, and, and, I'm sh- and let's, let's deal with the, 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 the practical benefits of hairnets, which would be keeping hair out of food, right? So let's look and see if we have any data on customer complaints from hair and food, right? And then let's go and let's do a little bit of research on the microbiology associated with hair and then figure out, okay, so if we had a decrease in hairnet compliance, what would that do to customer complaints? What would that do to our bottom line? If we had a decrease in compliance with hairnets, what would that do to food safety and and possible, you know, inoculation of food with staphylococcus, et cetera, et cetera. And then let's, uh, on, on the opposite, you know, on, on, in this in column two, uh, let's do the same analysis for norovirus. And then let's look and see how much we're spending on, nor, uh, on hairnets versus the benefit that we're getting or the risk that we're managing. And then let's look and see how much we're spending on norovirus. And then let's look and see at the, the, the benefit we're getting from that. And I suspect if you did that analysis, what you'd find is that you're spending way more money on hairnets than you are on norovirus with way less benefit. And then again, because we're not, we're not looking to you know, we have limited resources, right? right? So you can't, you can't like double your, your, your budget for food safety. You have the same budget you always had, but let's look at allocating those resources differently. What if we took not all of our hairnet resources, but some of our hairnet resources and we move them to norovirus? Um, now we got to figure out what does that mean to move hairnet resources to norovirus researchers resources. But, you know, I mean, there, there, there are probably, if you talk to the people in that operation, they probably have some ideas about where you could do less with not 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 do nothing with hairnets, right? Just do less with hairnets, hairnets, so you can do more for norovirus. And I, I suspect if you did that analysis, it wouldn't be that hard to do that analysis. And I suspect if you did the analysis, you'd discover that you could probably cut your hairnet budget in half and double your <laughs> norovirus control budget, and and you would be much safer in the in the long run. And then now the problem, the trick is you have to do that across all of your food safety portfolio, but, but that would be at least how I, as a guy who, who looks at, looks at risk and looks at quantifying things would do it. And, and again, the, but the key point is to realize that the CEO is not going to be a food safety expert, right. but chances are he's probably a money expert. Like he probably understands money, right? And he understands that he has a limited budget and he understands that he wants to be as safe as he po- can possibly be and make as much money as he can with this operation um, without making people sick or getting customer complaints about hair. Right, right. And and I think that's the – that last little bit that um, that you mentioned becomes this – this challenge to us and to to those who work um, with the with those CEOs and report to them or or however this information gets to the person that's got the budget is um, what we're really talking about and this is not unlike a lot of the stuff that that you and I do is we're talking about trying to um, provide a compelling argument for real risks versus perceived risks and that perceived risk of the customer 
that ends up on customer satisfaction surveys because you know retail stores spend a lot of money in in that arena beyond food safety ends up impacting the food safety aspect of things and it's where where it's not a risk-based decision and that's that's a risk communication challenge and i like i I mean as you kind of go through the the path there i almost see that 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 paper right like that that piece of information um we could do that. It's not unlike the the paper that you and I have talked about a lot before on the cost benefit analysis of vaccinating food handlers for hepatitis A, where um, it, it it is it's something to to be able to point to and say, okay, yes, if we had real numbers from you know company X, we could give you what it looks what it looks like. But here is a formula for you to um, to then show you, your. CEO or or whomever might be in charge of the, that budget to say this is why I need these types of food safety resources and why I don't maybe need as much in this area, but we understand that that's a quality perception thing. Like this is all this stuff is is it's complicated because we don't always and you know the the companies out there and uh, have to worry about lots of other things not just food safety. Right, right. Well, and it, and it comes back to our earlier discussion about packing houses, right? I mean, you're, you're not going to uh, renovate the packing house overnight, but you should start with the most risky things and get rid of them. And it, this reminds me of the, the uh, Pareto principle. Have you heard of the Pareto principle? It's no. also called the 80-20 rule. Oh, yeah. 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 So, so basically, I'm reading now from Wikipedia, which, as we know, is never wrong. It says that for many events, roughly 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. So in other words, uh, 80% of your food safety problems come from 20% of your, you know, things that can cause a food safety problem. And I would say probably um, the uh, norovirus would be in the 20% and uh, uh, packing house sanitation would be, you know, in 20% of the, the poor roller design. Yeah. And hair nets, hair nets are going to be in the 80% that's not causing the problem, right? So, and again, just for, for uh, edification, uh, essentially Pareto showed that 80% of the land was owned by 20% of the population, right? So, um, uh, <laughs> and uh, also apparently Pareto developed the principle by observing that 20% of the pea pods in his garden contained 80% of the peas. So, so there you go. Um, also, mathematically, this is what's called a power law distribution. So for those uh, in the audience who like, uh, who like math, uh, there's that. So, so anyway, it's, this is a really important idea, right? So, so 20% of your, 80% of your benefits are going to come from 20% of your, your ideas for improving it. So, so, and, this is, and this is, you know, again, the, the, the exact numbers change over time and depend upon the situation but but that power law distribution we just we see it again and again and again across so many different areas so I encourage listeners to think about food safety um, uh, from a power law perspective as well and realize that you're going to, you know, you want to start, and again, another way of saying is you want to start with low-hanging fruit, right? What are the what are the easy things to change that are going to have the greatest potential benefit, whether you're talking about uh, hairnets in a food service operation or whether you're talking about um, uh, food contact services in a packing house? It, yeah, and the danger of of that of the the mm-hmm. Prater principle is that mm-hmm. you and I would value the benefit differently than the CEO right like so so the right. low hanging fruit for for them may be hairnets 
right? Mm-hmm. I have I, I can I can get the biggest benefit in my you know if I if I spend a whole bunch of money on hair nets because it looks like food safety and I know that it has a regulatory compliance aspect of things, but you're missing the harder stuff, right? So it's, it's maybe am I yeah. Well, right. I mean, so whenever you're assessing risk, you have to be clear about risk of what, right? right? Is it risk of food poisoning? Is it risk of um, uh, consumer consumer complaints? Is it risk of getting a ding on your inspection form, right? I mean, same same thing with with gloves, right? I mean, gloves are even worse than hairnets, right? Because you go, like, again, I remember, and again, all all due respect to the folks at Disney, um, I remember uh, going, this was back when when Frank Giannis, uh, the, uh, you know, the the food safety culture guy, uh, was still working at Disney, and they were so proud of the fact that they use so many gloves. And it's like, well, that's great. I mean, it's good that you're using gloves. You're preventing uh, hand, bare hand contact. Um, but really, gloves are just part of the equation, really, right? It's hand washing. It's hand sanitizers. It's using the right utensils. I mean, sometimes you not, don't want to use a glove. You want to use a utensil. It's really about avoiding cross-contamination. So, so, but, but back to your point, it really depends upon what it is that you are counting, right? Because if, if, if what you care about is reduced illness, that's one thing. If what you care about is consumer perception, that's another thing, right? Well, if you care about profit in the restaurant, and that's why, again, I would go back to, to, to this appeal to the CEO and say, let's look at the effect of hairnets versus norovirus control on the bottom line of your restaurant, right? Because, because again, it doesn't, I mean, that and as mercenary as it is to make it about money, um, that is something that a CEO will understand. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, hey, I think that's a show, Don. I think so. I was. This is good. See, no prep equals fun for you and me. <laughs> I don't know if, it, if if people love like it or not, but I like. I, 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 I think like. The li- they like the ones where we don't prepare. I I like the ones we don't prepare. But I mean, I like it because we don't have to prepare. Yes. And, and I like, I just like talking to you. Yeah. Well, and you know, I like the ones where I had to prepare for this talk anyway. So yeah, it's perfect. And I just gave a talk. And you, and you gave me like such great ideas too. So, cool. um, I, I, and I appreciate your asking, uh, Sophia. I saw the email. I appreciate you asking for Sophia for that information. So, um, I, I did, uh, just while we're making it real here, I, you did say something about sending me some slides and I yeah. didn't, I don't see them. Did you oh, send those? I thought so. Okay. They're big. They're really big. Oh, maybe that's why it's taken a while. Yeah, they should have gone though. Uh, yeah, they went. They went. Okay. Maybe I sent them to the other. Maybe I sent them to David Bacon Schaffner. Could be. You could. You could have sent them to my Gmail address. Um, that's a good question. No, they went. Huh? But they're huge. They're like 12, okay. 12 megabytes. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll cut those down for you. Yeah, or just throw them in Dropbox. Oh yeah, that would work. Why not? Why not do that? Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's, I, you know, I, I am often, uh, and you know, I'm home on a fast, uh, internet connection, but sometimes our college servers are slow. Yeah. Uh, so I, I find, uh, big, big things go work better with Dropbox. So yes, that's that they're, they're going to have to run with that. That's just, I'm just an idea, man. Yeah. You just, that's, that's all you do. <laughs> I'm just, I just generate the ideas. Duplicate. I duplicated Don. It's, it should be in Dropbox soon. Fascinating. All right, thank you. Um, hey, this has been Food Safety Talk. We enjoy talking to each other about food safety. And we enjoy talking to you, too. So send us uh, messages. Send us feedback. Uh, rate us in iTunes. All of those are good things. We would love, we would love to hear from you. We would love for you to rate us. Um, we would love for you to come uh, say hello at IAFP uh, and, uh, and, and say hello to us. You know? So come, come find us. Um, and, and we'll buy you free drinks at uh, receptions. I mean, standing yeah, offer that, every year. Yeah. 
Yeah, Ben. Ben will actually buy you free drinks when uh, there is an open bar. I will actually buy you a a, a drink at a real bar with money. Mm, okay. <laughs> hey, I got, you, I got your. I got your. Not you, Ben. The listeners. I got you. I got your slides. Thank you. Perfect. Good. Good. They are in. They they should be there. Um. All right. Well, uh, folks, uh, that's it. So, Don, as always, I will uh, talk to you soon. This has been great. Thanks, Ben. Bye bye. Cool, cool. Um, okay, so there's another paper that I have to send you mm. that has the um, the meta analysis of the refrigerator stuff. And okay, I can't cool. find it. That's okay. Um, I don't know if that'll matter for you, but yeah. Well, there's lots of temperature data out there, but yeah. the, but the meta analysis where they put together all that data sounds really interesting. Yeah, it was. Uh, I looked at it um, briefly to grab the. You'll see there's a um, a figure from in, in one of my slides, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, that I described without without like, and I mentioned that I got it from this paper, but I can't remember what it was from. That was okay. u- very useful. Okay, cool, um, cool. Um, and hey, I forgot that I have to run at eleven thirty, so I gotta. I got. Oh, I have like a hard out. Oh well, and it's eleven thirty. So eleven thirty. See you later. All right, talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>